And welcome to another Sabbath day. Uh, and we're still in the bunker. Um, kind of a little uh, concerning at this point as, as we're doing these classes that uh, there's been kind of an uptick in all of the cases and some things are reclosing and, and here we are. I was thinking about this earlier as we were getting ready to, to do this and recognize that we started doing this class back in January and at that point we wouldn't have had any idea that this class would be going through to as we're now crossing into July that for since uh, mid-March that this would have been done online and that we've continued to get Paul all the way through his experiences and get him off to Rome and now we're being able to kind of go backwards and look at all of the uh, the the promises and covenants and things that are were associated and things he was trying to teach and we're trying to put our arms around it as well as look at the ramifications of living in a covenant promised uh, existence and church at this moment in time so what a great experience uh, again uh, as always as you're coming in let us know where you're coming from uh, give us a quick ding as to where you're visiting it's kind of fun I think for everybody to kind of see uh, kind of the the larger outreach that we have on this so make sure you just kind of sign in and say hello and and where you're from and then uh, as always these classes are always recorded and then put up on uh, the the YouTube uh, channel uh, under this the same name so uh, welcome to the class and uh, let's go ahead and get going now I don't know about you but it's, it's easy these days uh, to find yourself stuck in a social media war you didn't necessarily expect. Have you found the experience where you put a comment out there in responding to something that you saw um, and suddenly somebody is flaming back at you and they're mad because you said this and then you say that and suddenly with, with both friends and relatives and things you find yourself battling on the simplest of issues. You, I mean, you, you might say, I looked out today and the sky was blue and somebody would come on and say, you would think it's blue, wouldn't you? Given what you think. Uh, and because it really isn't blue and this is why. And, and we're off. And we're off uh, arguing whether or not uh, the sky is blue. That is kind of the polarizing times uh, that we're in. Now, Sociologic, uh, social, sociologic, uh, yeah, those guys that work with sociology <laughs> uh, have a name for this, and and the best way to describe this is in fact a term called othering. That is that we are in the process of being othered while we're kind of being flamed online, uh, and this sense of othering says. You are you, and I am me, and I'm not you, and I'm right, and you're wrong, because you're the other guys over there. Uh, so, so this idea of othering is this sense of, of I'm going to identify who I am and my identity because I'm not you. And you do these things, I do this thing, so you are you, and I am me, and I am right and you are wrong. And, and we kind of go down that road. Um, now, what, what crosses over from, it's not just the fact that I am me, it's I am right. 
and I have the truth, and you don't have the truth. And and so if if you're if you're being you, then I have to assume that you either don't understand, you don't get it. How come you don't get this? Uh, you're you're uh, uneducated, uh, you're, or you're too judgmental, um, and that because that's what you do. That's what them do against me because I certainly don't do that because I stand solidly in the truth but those on the outside of me don't get it you are the thems that that don't that don't have any understanding so what does that mean well that what that really means is then I'm going to listen and learn only from the me's us me's have the answers so I'm going to listen only to those voices that are me's and I'm going to avoid those voices that are the thems, the others, because they don't know. And, and who knows where they got their stuff from, but I'm going to only listen to the me's. Um, I have this wonderful little echo chamber in which all the voices inside my me-ness are going to tell me exactly what I, I want to hear. Uh, I, I love this. And, and ultimately, I will listen to the thems, as long as they're saying the things that I believe and it's coming out of their mouth. Then there are the thems that are finally getting it right. Um, and, and that's that othering sense. And so by doing that, we polarize out and we sit over here trapped in our meanness, in our world of us, listening only to those voices and over time continue to harden and separate against the thems. That's othering. Now, where this really sharply comes out, and, and you would say, well, that's politics. That happens certainly in, in a political sense, in an election year. But at the same time, it's perhaps the lines are even more sharply drawn uh, in a religious setting. Um, I was aware yesterday that what it is the uh, it was the anniversary of uh, the death and martyrdom of the prophet Joseph Smith. June 27th always has kind of a soft spot in our heart. That's at, at uh, 20 minutes past 5 uh, on June 27th yesterday I was aware this is the moment at which uh, the guns were firing. And from that experience uh, we know that the saints uh, went from that experience to the next 18 months living in Nauvoo were certainly a time of otherness. Uh, the cities around uh, Illinois and Iowa were holding meetings about why the thems, the Mormons, should be leaving and they need to be gone and we need to encourage them to go and we're going to get a promise from them that they're leaving. And for, so the, for the next 18 months, the church is quickly trying to finish building the temple. At the same time, they're building wagons and selling property and getting ready to go. Uh, and then finally cross the river 18 months later uh, in February of 1846. As the saints left, you cannot blame them at all that as they left the United States and crossed over into what was still then the kind of the Mexican territory and off into the working towards the Great Basin, that they had a sense of we are us 
and they are them. And it was uh, built upon, actually, as we'll, we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute, it was built more to it around the idea that this is the camp of Israel, and that as we, we are Israel about to cross out of exile, out of Egypt, out of thems, and we're going to go forward into a land promised to us by God. And part of that seeing themselves as Israel also then gives them a us identification that Israel always had. And that is, we are not just another group of people here upon the land. We are Israel. We are the promised people. God loves us. He loves us. He's given us this land. He has given us this promise. He is our God. And we are greatly blessed to be the children of Abraham. Now, without saying this, here, here's the corollary to what's not being said. God loves us, so he doesn't love you. We are the promised people, and you are not. We get the land, and you don't. God will protect us against you. You are the thems. You are the other people, and you have your gods, and those gods are not our gods, because he is our God, and he loves us, and he will take care of us, and he will protect us from you. <laughs> so, there is, so they lived inside that sense of that, and Again, we just don't have to, we just can't blame Brigham Young and, and the saints as they pour uh, through the, the mud of Iowa and the heat of Nebraska and make their way to the, the Great Basin and be sheltered in there, sheltered from the thems, sheltered from the world. And we're going to, and we're going to understand very clearly who we are. We are God's chosen people. And they are not. And even if we're going to send out missionaries, we're going to send out missionaries from the chosen people nestled among the mountains to call Israel home, to bring them back in. If we find somebody out there and they have the believing blood, they're going to hear it, they're going to join with us, come out of Babylon, leave Babylon behind, and be one of us. They have the, the Bible. They have the abominable creeds. And we have the Book of Mormon and the truth. And so you had this sense, especially in those isolation years before the railroad came through and kind of brought the rest of the world to Utah, there was an overwhelming sense of always that we are us and we are protected in here and we are loved and protected and guided and God will not allow Johnson's army or anybody else to come into our land and take this from us. By golly, we will fight. We will be the army of Israel and we will push back. 
because we are his people. So there has been, I think, in our, in our culture, a sense of us and them. By, first of all, by history and by culture, and I think that's rolled forward. So uh, what happens then when we get to the, the history of the church, it really does become a history of the sacred people, places, covenants, priesthoods, keys, and the profane, the other guys, them out there, uh, who don't have the keys and the priesthood and the authority and the knowledge that we have. Now, that meant that uh, we would take it then to say, okay, we need to make sure that for us and our kids, we are in the world, but not of the world. Because that's worldly, that's them. And we don't want to be tainted by them. They have a set, different set of values and beliefs uh, about this. Um, so we're going to make sure that we're, even though the, the world has things like Handel's Messiah and Shakespeare and, and some, some great things out there, that's still them. Uh, in fact, uh, there, might, there was even a little bit of colonialism where we would say, well, we're looking for all truth. So guess what? If uh, Handel's Messiah is really inspired, he's kind of us. <laughs> he's, he, you know, we love C.S. Lewis. We do. C.S. Lewis is really kind of us. We're going to pull him into our us-ness because anything of the world, we, we, drew, we drew those really sharp distinctions. And what you always got, and it was, it was really pointed, especially in Utah, maybe in the late uh, 1890s or something like that, you get the sense of the saints versus the Gentiles. Who's the Gentile people and, and the saints? And even the Gentiles were saying, we don't want to be the thems, those Brighamites that believe their stuff and that crazy stuff. We want to be us. Uh, and even as the trains were, were coming through, I was listening to a great podcast the other day about the lengths that uh, the Gentiles were going through to make Corinth, Utah, like the second Salt Lake, but it was going to be the Gentile capital and it was going to be close to the railroad and, and the r railroad was going to bring the real people into Utah and kind of isolate Salt Lake, Brighamite, weird Mormon people. And uh, Brigham Young was able to kind of short change that by uh, working together with him, creating a spur to Salt Lake. And Corinth never became the second Salt Lake City. Um, so sometimes that us, them, and the othering thing kind of crosses over a little bit into those that are, are you a convert or were you raised in the church? Did you join the church as an adult or are you seventh generation church from pioneer stock uh, that goes all the way back uh, to Joseph Smith and, uh, and I don't want to say that that makes me ever, any more special but I am kind of more special. <laughs> I've got I've got that great knowledge, um, so, so we would get into that. Uh, I won't even touch BYU versus Utah, where that that otherness is in full glory in the holy war 
that's simply a basketball or a football game, but it's still a holy war. Um, and then, and and I think that actually crossed over, and this is where it, I think it started to have some tougher ramifications uh, for us, because I remember certainly as a missionary um, in the 70s, and I was very aware of the faith versus works idea, that those that are born again, it's just faith by grace, and they just say it, and they're saved, and that's that's a little bit uh, simplistic, and they're thems. Versus those of us who understand works and baptism and all of that kind of thing, we understand that it's, it's, it's by obedience, by keeping the commandments that we go to heaven, not by as born agains would think. So it was a faith versus works. We would have those clashes and battles with Christians that would believe that and, and uh, Bible bashes as we went back and forth to prove who was, the, who was the us and who was the them and who was the right and who was the wrong. That otherness just kind of crept in and I think distorted our understanding in a very powerful way of the full grace and power of the Savior and how it worked. But you could see it coming out of that otherness of, of who we are and who we are not. So, so then that brings us then ultimately to this idea then of if we, are the, if we are the true church, what does that say about everybody else? Do they have some truth, a lot of truth? If they have a lot of truth, does that threaten the true church? Do we have to make sure that we draw those distinctions so we don't get pulled in to their stuff? Well, I'll tell you where the, the ramifications of this are really coming home to bite us, I think. And that is, we talked uh, a week or two ago about uh, those that are fu- uh, struggling with faith crisis situations and they're wondering if they want to stay in the church or not. Uh, and they're leaving... Um, be interested to see how many have left when the church comes back out of the wilderness of the virus thing and we get back and we look around and we see here's who's still here and who maybe has wandered off. And we're going to see that at some point, I think, in this next year. Um, but when they start asking people about uh, that are having some kind of a faith crisis, they have chosen to leave the church. The number two reason why it is number one reason for women is that they feel judged number two reason for men is that they no longer believe the truth claims of the church well what that really is code for the truth claims means that uh, they're kind of looking specifically at this line i think from dnc one that says that this Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only true and living church upon the face of the earth. Now, for someone outside of that, of our church, to read that or to be told that or to come to realize that that's what we believe, that's a pretty bold claim. And it's a pretty arrogant claim in some ways, is it not? To say of all the people and all the faith traditions in the world out there, and you look at all the good that's being done by a lot of different faith traditions, 
that we're the only true and living church on the face of the earth. And those that are struggling with faith crisis are saying, nah, I've studied enough. I see good things in other places. I'm having a hard time swallowing the only true church thing uh, because I think that 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 doesn't just say we're the only true church. We're saying, and they're false, and they're not true because we have not just the truth, but all of the truth is here among 16 million in a world of 7 billion. That, that, that seems a preposterous claim. Well, that claim of being the only true and living church uh, is challenged a little bit. Um, uh, President uh, Kimball in his time said, the great religious leaders of the world, such as Muhammad, Confucius, and the reformers, and philosophers, including Socrates, Plato, and others, received a portion of God's light. Moral truths were given to them by God. Why? To enlighten whole nations and bring a higher level of understanding to individuals. That's quite, that's, that's quite a statement. Moral truths were given to them by God to do what? To enlighten whole nations and bring a higher level of understanding to individuals. Hang on to that idea in just a minute when we start talking about covenants and promises of the fathers and what that's, that's going to mean. Um, Hubie Brown actually uh, uh, chimed in as well. Uh, Elder Brown says this, We have been blessed with much knowledge by revelation from God, which in some part the world does lack. But there is an incomprehensibly greater uh, part of truth which we must yet discover. Our revealed truth should leave us stricken with the knowledge of how little we really know. Wow. But wait, there's more. He says, it should never lead to an emotional arrogance based on a false assumption, Elder Brown says, that we somehow have all the answers, that we in fact have a corner on truth. And then he says, for we do not. How do we balance that? idea that we don't have all the truth. We're seeking it out. We recognize how much we don't have and that others may have a variety of truths we don't have. How do we balance that with that statement um, that this is that, that this church according to DNC 1 in a revelation from the Lord says that this is the only true and living church upon the face of of the whole earth? That's quite a question and and we don't have a complete answer on that. We're looking for truth. This is one of the truths we don't have completely. Uh, can I give you a possibility on that? Um, it says earlier in this revelation that the, the uh, revelations were given to Joseph in his weakness, in the manner of his own language. 
that by doing that, that this phrase, the only true and living church, was a phrase that he would have understood. Now, I find it interesting that we, that we have a, jo- a letter from Joseph written to Emma in 1832 while he's in New York. And he says this, Emma, you must comfort yourself knowing that God is your friend in heaven and that you have one true and living friend on earth, your husband, Joseph Smith. Now, this you have a true and living friend is, is a statement that comes up in Joseph's language in his words from time to time. I don't think for a moment he was intimating that he was the only friend on the earth Emma had. But that phrase, if you start to look at it in the other places in which it is used, could really be translated as, I am your loyal friend. I am one loyal friend to you. And in some ways, that makes some sense to me. When, I, when we start talking about the only true and living church, if we talk about it in terms of loyalty to God, then we have something, I think, uh, to offer. And then the true and living church makes sense. And, and, and yet we're going to step back and we're going to say, well, wait a minute, but we have keys and the temple and the Book of Mormon. We do. We have all of we we have that. No one else does. I loved um, I love the the explanation that uh, uh, writer uh, Patrick Mason suggested, which I thought was a really good one. And he talks about how the earth was supposed to be kind of made into this garden. So we got all these gardens out of here, and everybody has their particular plot. And each, and each man and woman is supposed to have their particular spiritual gifts. And the Lord says, everybody is given a gift. And so we take a look at that, if we take a look at the world as garden plots, that we as Latter-day Saints have our particular garden plot. It, this is our plot. What do we have in our plot? We have temple work family history, additional scripture, additional understanding of the divinity of God. We have some wonderful things to share with the world. It grows in our garden plot, and if anybody's like grown zucchini, you know eventually it just takes over, and you have to share that zucchini with other people. You leave that in there, and if somebody leaves their window down on their car, you're leaving zucchini in their car or on their porch. You know, you just have lots and lots of, you have a very prosperous plot. Well, in, in the church, we have been blessed with beautiful gifts and some things in our plot that nobody else has. But guess what? Other people have other plots and they also have things to share with us. And, and if we're in a position where we're saying we share the unique things that we have with us, if we don't turn them into others, then we're more likely to be able to say, and you have things to share 
with us that we don't have that are valuable to us and enhance our, our, the way we see love or the way that we see service or the way that we have a, a chance to worship. Sometimes in our otherness, we have excluded the gifts that other people in their plots have to share with us. And we have made, and we've built in cultural distinctions that exclude those. Like the beauty of the cross, for instance, is one that I've, I've talked about. Here's another one. Um, we have, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were really surprised that as Latter-day Saints, we didn't celebrate uh, Palm Sunday. That that Sunday before Easter, where Jesus is, is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Think about that for a minute. We are the church that does the Hosanna shout in our temples, mimicking in a way that triumphal entry. How in the world did we end up in our plot without Palm Sunday? Cultural. Drawing distinctions between us and them. Along with that, where in our church did we end up without a massive love and celebration for Good Friday? We love the Savior. We know what He did. And yet, we're in a position where uh, culturally we've excluded things like the cross, like Palm Sunday. Those are beautiful expressions from other Christian traditions where we could learn from those moments. And yet, unfortunately, we don't. We could learn, for instance, from uh, Eastern religions like Buddhism, the beauty of meditation and, and being able to be a contemplative and thinking and getting calm. Can we do that without fear that we are somehow treading on our uniqueness? Or that if our kids are studying Buddhism, that somehow they'll be pulled off to be Buddhist and not Latter-day Saints? Or do we set it up to say, we love truth where we find it, and we want to be able to be taught wherever we can find that? Now, that, that means, though, that, that there's a mix here of... Again, and let, can, let me take it one step uh, farther on this. Uh, in 1831, when they're talking about the everlasting covenant in section 1, the Lord says, Prepare ye for that which is to come, for the Lord is nigh. For they, meaning the world, have strayed from mine ordinances and have broken mine everlasting covenant. They have broken a covenant. Now, he's wanting to restore a covenant that was broken. Uh, and he says, and, and how can you tell somebody who has broken a covenant? And we're not even sure what the covenant is. And I'll show you what I think, part of what that is in a second. 
Uh, they seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness. Every man walketh in his own way after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world. Those that have broken the covenant are those that have turned from the Lord. He says, and gone after their own way. And they're not seeking the Lord to establish his righteousness. Those are covenant breakers. Now, if we're going to then look at, um, for instance, in uh, Jeremiah, here's another one where a covenant is being made. Jeremiah says, they shall be, uh, the Lord is saying to them, right at the moment, by the way, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar's at their gate and they're about to be destroyed and Jerusalem is going to be burned and Israel is going to be scattered. He says, there will, there's a coming day when they shall be my people and I will be their God. Again, that unique Israelite covenant will return. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. And certainly as they came back out of exile, there was a 70 years later from Babylon, there was a hope that as they would come back, they would rebuild the temple and they would be protected once again and he would be their God and he, they would be his people, his unique people. Okay? Now, isn't it fascinating then that that happens... They are scattered, they are brought back together, they're trying to build, and then in the meridian of time, the Savior comes. And what is he doing? He's bringing a covenant with him. And what's the covenant? Well, it's best expressed by uh, the Apostle Paul when he's writing to the, Gen uh, to the Gentiles, in this case, the Galatians. And what does he say to them? There is no longer Gentile or Jew slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And that would have been hard for Jews to recognize that what they had, what they had built their lives on, that they were the unique people, had changed. That into the kingdom, Gentiles were being invited into that covenant that all were going to be alike. And that the blessings everybody were going to, was going to be extended, that blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I can make of the rocks children of Israel, Jesus said. That's a, shame. That's a change from a unique in, at times of Israel to with Jesus and the new covenant that there was going to be an inclusiveness of everybody brought in to this. And how would we know those that had been brought into the covenant? Well, DNC 1 is going to show us again. Therefore, I, the Lord, knowing the calamity that should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, and we're probably feeling like we're in calamities at the moment, and spake to him from heaven and gave him commandments. What would the commandments do? Well, he gave them commandments that they would proclaim unto the world and all this that it might be fulfilled which was written by the prophets, especially Paul. Now, what if this covenant is reestablished on the earth, what will it look like? Well, whoever is a partaker of the covenant, it says, 
the weak things of the world shall come forth and break down the mighty ones. And man should not counsel his fellow man nor trust in the arm of flesh. Whoever's going to accept this covenant will look to God for his strength and his covenantness and his power and his trust. But that every man might speak in the name of God the Lord, even the Savior of the world. Whoever is a partaker of this covenant will speak the words of Christ in his name, even the Savior of the world. And as I'm going to about to mention in a minute, we're going to find out that there are a lot of people speaking the words of Christ and they don't even know it. There are a lot of people who are part of this wave of covenantness that don't even know that they're part of it. Because it's not merely bound to those that have priesthood keys. But ultimately will be blessed by the power coming from that plot. Right? That faith might increase on the earth. Whoever is going to partake of the covenant will increase faith in Christ. And we think about the great theologians and people and 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 simple simple nuns living in a convent somewhere that are by their efforts and their service and their love and their devotion are in so many ways they're increasing faith on the earth there is more faith as a result of them than there would have been without them that if, if as all of this is happening that mine everlasting covenant might be established and that the fullness of my gospel might be proclaimed now you and I have no idea whether that gospel will be proclaimed to them in this life or the next. But those who are partaking of the covenant in our church plot or other church plots, their efforts, have, they speak in the name of Christ. Think about Mother Teresa. Think about those kind of people. Faith is increased upon the earth, and that at some day in the right place, their lifetime of preparation will make their acceptance of the additional parts of the gospel the easiest step in the world for them. But in the meantime, look at what they're doing in the world, and, and what do they have to teach us? See, the problem that we have with, with a number of the people, uh, the, the nuns, the, 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 not the nuns, N-U-N, but the N-O-N-E's that said, my religion is a nun. And this is the, in, in millennial circles, this is the highest religious affiliation of nuns. I have no religion. And almost all of them would say, yes, but I'm spiritual. I'm just not religious. The problem with that is that while this is a, they're going to feel good about what they're doing. The gospel of Christ is, is one of uh, community, and it's a sense of outreach. And while somebody may have a sense of being closer to God in the mountains or, you know, wherever, 
they're also missing out on the wonderful, beautiful service that is that the Savior was requiring. Love one another. Feed my sheep. That's the words of Christ. Those participating in the covenant are those that feel that draw to serve and love and take care of and do those wonderful kinds of things. That, those are people of the covenant. They get it. And faith increases on the earth through their, through their efforts, regardless of what other faith tradition they may be in. And they have things to teach us about how they did that and what it felt like and what their experience was. See, I think one of the barriers that we have in this whole thing is that we talk about the restoration. And, and, and think about it, those of you who have done some furniture restoring. You take something that is already beautiful but has maybe been beaten up or it's broken and it needs to be fixed. But you can see with some love and effort that the luster that exists in that thing can be brought forward. Sometimes when we talk about the restoration of the gospel, we think about it in terms of the replacement of the gospel. That they're, all their ministers are corrupt and their creeds are abominable. And, and what we got was a restoration, a brand new thing dropped in. I think that the concept of restoration is actually the right word for this. Because there is so much in traditional Christianity that is beautiful and sacred and faith affirming. And what does a restoration do? We bring to it the gifts that we have that are unique to us to bring additional luster to something that's already beautiful. We don't have to replace it. In fact, we're going to buy furniture to restore because of its previous beauty and can be restored to its full luster once again. We're not looking to throw it out and create something different. We're simply adding to it what we bring to the table. Things like what? Um, I, I saw I saw uh, something online. You, you read stuff you don't know if it's completely apocryphal, uh, but here here is the here's the uh, story that is told, and it's it's a Michelangelo uh, painting the Sistine Chapel, which is really hard to see when you're standing there and it's way up there. And this is how it now looks, and here's Adam's hand, and here's the Savior's hand. Um, the, the story goes that he originally drew it with Adam's finger touching God's finger. That there was a connection there. And that a group of priests came in through, coming through said, no, it would be better if, if it's not quite there, that he's going to have to use his agency to, to reach up and touch. But I also think it came because they were very, uh, they had been so filled with kind of a, a Calvinistic idea of God is a supreme, untouchable, removed, supreme being, and we are so far beneath him. And I think the idea of them being able to touch would have been kind of off-putting to them. I think they would have preferred to have this separation uh, between the two. So, this is probably going to get me in uh, in hot water with the, with the, with the missionary department. Um, we have been by by culture 
um, that we that we want to be able to say to somebody of another church, another religion, that we're going to get to know them. We're going to befriend them, and then we're going to ask them questions that then lead to introducing them to the missionaries and getting them to church because our primary goal is to get them in into the church with us. In doing that, I wonder if we are so quick with an agenda that we miss out on asking questions about their experiences. We are so quick to tell them about our us-ness and make them thems that we miss out on saying, there, there's beauty in your experience. Tell me about yours. Tell me what your experience was in coming to Christ. Tell me about how you worship. Tell me how you see these scriptures. Tell, in other words, I'm, I'm here to learn. What an experience that would be for missionaries that are invited into a home to be able to say, first tell me about you. Tell me about what your needs are. Tell me about the things that you struggle with. But also tell me about the strength of your spiritual experiences. And, and, be, and, and we can learn from what you have to share. Now, I think often, and, and kind of do this kind of in closing here. Somebody is going to say to us, why, why is your church different than us? What, what is there about Mormonism or Latter-day Saints that is different? And I think by, by history, we've had a tendency to go, um, gold plates, authority, authority to baptize, uh, uh, angels, uh, and, and we immediately start hitting all of these things that, that make of our history, and that's why, uh, again, Richard Bushman has said, well, I think our, over, for so long our, our theology has been our history. We tell our history to tell why we're unique. And that's really nice to say to somebody, what makes us different is we have the authority and you don't. <laughs> and you have the Bible, but we have the Book of Mormon. And however we want to paint that, what we're saying is, is that we have the truth and you don't. What would happen if, some, if, if instead someone were to say to us, what makes your church different? Why should I even listen to any, you know, I, I'm curious about you. I, I, I visited Salt Lake. Tell me about you guys. T tell me about what you believe. What if we started off by saying something like this? First thing you need to know about us is that we love Christianity. We love the beauty that is in the Christian thought and the Christian life and the Christian belief. We love our Savior. He died for us. He provide, we we're saved by His grace and by His mercy. And we worship Him at, at, in His death and resurrection. We, we worship that. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. We believe that it, that it contains the sacred words of the Savior and great people like Paul and Peter. We, we, we believe in the Bible. Uh, and we see it as the Word of God. Now, 
what is it that we bring to the table? Well, we believe that the heavens are open. And that one of the things that we've found uh, that the heavens are open, that it reaffirms that the Bible is the Word of God and that Christ is our Savior. That's, that's what we believe. That while we may believe in some additional revelation, we can talk about that more later, you just need to know that what it says is that Jesus is the Christ. And what it says is that the Bible contains uh, the Word of God. The heavens are open. What do we bring? We believe that, that we think that th part of what has happened with the heavens open is that we have even more validation of a God who loves us. It's what we believe in a God who weeps along with our pain. That, that he is there for us and he struggles with us and, and, and is there to heal us and pick us up when we're broken and when we hurt. And all of the additional revelation that we might have confirms that we have a loving God in heaven, not a distant, uh, out-of-touch ruler in our life. We think we bring to the, the table additional scripture that does what? It testifies that the Bible is the Word of God. It's another testament that says it's true. And even more, wit another witness that says Jesus is exactly who he said he was. Jesus is the Christ. Another thing that we have to offer is that we have a love of family and, and understand even more its eternal nature and how we can be with those that we love into the eternities. That's who we are. Now, and then... And now tell me about your experience and, and, and what do you find? And, and, and in other words, we're, when we're talking to somebody who believes also in this stuff, we are talking to other people who have been blessed by the covenant, the covenant that will raise faith in the world, the covenant where people are speaking the words of Christ and sometimes they're atheists. <laughs> they don't know that the, the language of love and caring and kindness are the words of Christ and at some point we have a chance to tell them where that came from and we have a chance to learn from other people of the covenant brothers and sisters it, it's, it's my testimony that we have unique gifts that the world needs that is not available anywhere else but in that uniqueness can we also not we stop ourselves from not believing that other people don't have things to share with us that would enhance our faith and would enhance their faith and would enhance our love and our understanding of things. And, the, and that's what a true, the true church on the face of the earth would do, would be to embrace love and those that understand other people of the covenant and recognizing whether it's in this world or the next that they're speaking the words of Christ will prepare them for that moment when they have a chance to have ordinances done. And our, and our theology says everybody ultimately will get those ordinances. But they may have a lifetime of preparation for that ordinance by serving as a Buddhist monk. Then kind of being lukewarm somewhere else. 
and that we love them and we can be taught by them our other people of the covenant. I bear you my testimony that it's true. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.